Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, April 16th. We begin with a focus on teens dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We speak with a professor of pediatrics on the challenges facing our teens during this time and how to have effective conversations surrounding the topic. Are you having an increase in vivid dreams during this coronavirus crisis? We'll talk with a dream expert on the meaning behind them. Can we take a lesson from the past to get through the current pandemic? We'll speak with an historian on the comparisons between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu of 1918. And finally, Cups Calgary is launching a new fund to help vulnerable clients during this COVID-19 outbreak. We'll give you details on how you can lend a hand. 710, we've all been told to stay home, to stay safe, but for some, that's easier to handle than others. Joining us to talk about dealing with your teen during the pandemic is Dr. Claire McCarthy, primary care pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hi, doctor. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. What do we do with our teens if they are not buying into this physical distancing thing? Well, you know, it's so hard, right? This is the worst time of life mm. to get a teen to stay home. We get any uh, at this age because they are all about independence and making their own decisions. They feel immortal and they need their friends. And I also keep hearing in the news that, hey, you know, young people don't get as sick. So I think what's the big deal? So I think that we all have to be understanding of teens and understand that this is really developmentally normal. It's just that it could be a little bit life-threatening. So I think... First of all, you really need to talk to teens and help them understand the facts and help them understand how their decisions can really affect others in ways they may not be thinking about. I think that's the the first thing is just to make sure they've got the right facts. Talking to them about it seriously Um, is, is one thing, but I'm wondering how we, you know, underscore the seriousness but not scare our teens at the same time because they're not adults, are they? I think that's going to depend on the age of the teen. So, yes, you don't want to terrify a 13- or 14-year-old. But if you've got a 16- or 17-year-old, they're at the verge of becoming independent adults, and they need to understand. Now, you don't want to say, you know, if you go out of the house, we're all going to die. I mean, (laughs) you don't necessarily want to phrase it that way. But I think that teenagers need real information and real facts and need to not be shielded from the facts. We don't do them any favors by shielding them from facts. They're at a point in their life where they need to know what's going on in the world and make good decisions based on that information. So you don't want to terrify them, but you do at the same time need to help them understand what's going on. And that's why sending them to Good websites like, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, other websites that have very, you know, evidence-based information so that they can understand what implications their actions might have. I think that's... I think you also... Sorry, go ahead, doctor. Sorry, we have a bit of delay. I apologize for that. Go ahead. Oh, no. But I I think that you need to be understanding as well and and understand that this is just really, really tough for them and work with them in that way. It's a great point. And, you know, you talk about, um, you know, they they are smart and they are getting the information on social media and it may not always be correct. So, yeah, sending them to those fact-based websites where they will get proper information is a great idea. And, And we know, too, at that age as teenagers their brain's still not fully developed. So they're, they're cute, but they not, might not be all that smart sometimes about what they should and shouldn't be doing. No, exactly. 
exactly. It's biology. It's not really their fault. The frontal lobe is just really developing at this part of life. And that's the part of the brain that helps them understand consequences of action and helps them understand that they can't always follow every impulse, helps them um, have delayed gratification, be patient. These are all skills that they're just developing. And so we can't give them too hard a time if they're not totally up to speed on these things. This is this is their brains developing. And that's why I think we have to be understanding and help them work with their very real struggles of feeling isolated from their friends and feeling sad and feeling like their world is turned upside down because it is. All of our worlds are turned upside down right now. And to not engage with them about that and not validate that is only going to make your job much harder when it comes to keeping them inside. And so many milestones during the teen years, Dr. McCarthy. For example, in my house, I've got a 13th birthday coming up tomorrow night. And then uh, my older teen has a graduation that is more than likely canceled and scrubbed. So I think that uh, underscoring the fact that these are major milestones and we will celebrate them later. So I think understanding that they will still see their friends and they will still get to hit these milestones at a time during uh, the pandemic-free, if you will. Right. But I think not to minimize the losses, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many losses. My daughter had to come home from her freshman year at college and she'd just gotten over her homesickness and was having a wonderful time. And to be honest, I don't know if she's going to go back in the fall. And think of all the the high school, like the high school graduations that aren't happening, the college graduations that aren't happening, the senior proms, the junior proms, the, you know, all these, the SATs and all the getting ready for college, the college visiting trips. These, yes, we'll do this stuff later. It'll all be okay. It'll, it'll work out somehow. But these are real terrible losses. Mm -hmm. And I think we as adults can have a bit more perspective and say, you know, life is long. It's going to be okay. But when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, life is not so long. And these are huge. These are huge losses. And I I think we need to understand that and, and try to find ways to mitigate this as best we can and help them find ways to connect, help them find ways to, you know, do self-care and be happy and um, find some meaning in all this because it's really hard. So, Doctor, do what do we do? Do we set up a Zoom account for them? Do we set some rules and consequences should they actually go out and try to meet up with friends? Yes, to both of those. I think you have to, you have to come at it from both ways, right? You have to give them the opportunities and other ways to see their friends and help them with the technology and other things that can help them do that. But at the same time, you do have to have rules because these are scary times. And it is just simply true that if they go out and they socialize and they come home, they could bring back uh, the virus. So there need to be rules. You don't get to do this. And if you go and do this, there are consequences. And, um, and you need to follow through on those consequences. And what those consequences are will vary from family to family and transgression to transgression. There will always be some teens who just are so defiant and don't listen. And they're just like, you know what, I'm out of here. And I think families should really reach out for help in those situations. Reach out to their pediatrician or to trusted teachers or anybody that is connected with a family that the teen might listen to and get help. Because... In extraordinary times, we all need help sometimes. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Claire, uh, Dr. McCarthy. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Take care.
That is Dr. Claire McCarthy, primary care pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Schooling continues to be a major concern throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. SOS Alberta is disappointed the Alberta Education and ATA are not seriously considering the impact of online schooling for parents and for kids. We're joined this morning by Public Education Advocate and Communications Director for SOS Alberta, Barbara Silva. Hi, Barb. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us why you're concerned with what's going on right now. Well, I'm concerned because I think we're not really taking a look at the biggest, broadest picture. Um, this pandemic is going to last, as we now know, uh, you know, as a result of the address by the, the Premier. Um, it's going to last quite a few months. And even if we're back in September, there could be second and third waves. So the interruption in, in, in schooling for kids is going to have bigger, broader effects on their mental health, on, on social interactions with their families. And it's, an, it's a mistake, in our opinion, to focus so much on, on academics. So what would we change the focus to be, Barb? Because I know that a lot of people think that's the only way is traditional education online during this time. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly what this this opportunity provides us, is an opportunity to refocus. Of course, we want teachers, and we did need our educational assistants, to maintain relationships with students, to have weekly check-ins for kids to be able to still communicate with uh, their classmates, um, to have discussions about what they're learning outside of textbook and worksheets. The relationships in education are the primary focus. They always have been, actually. Students who build strong relationships and are engaged do better in school. But we can't just be focused on, um, again, worksheets, quizzes, and grading. The fact that we're trying to assess students and give them grades in this time is actually going to compound a lot of the trauma that these students are already facing, uh, you know, with regard to the pandemic. So what would be your solution? Do we do we not focus on the academics side of thing or we just more teach them sort of, you know, daily lessons? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we all too often confuse academics and learning or academics and knowledge or academics and education. And so this is actually a wonderful opportunity to show children. And we all know, we probably all were kids who once said, well, when am I ever going to use this? Or <laughs> why don't we ever learn anything that applies in real life in school? Well, these are great opportunities. We can teach our kids how to take the tire pressure on our cars, which you know has science implications. We can get them to learn to check the oil in your vehicle or, as I've said before, baking and sewing. And all of these things that have real life applications of measuring, fractions, pressure. Um, and so that's a great way to learn. We can also read with our kids and, and start journaling this incredible time that we're all going through. And of course, I think that we need teachers and educational assistants to maintain a, a routine and a schedule with children, but it's an opportunity to take away that sort of route learning academic focus that I think truly is only adding stress to families and parents and trauma where there's already enough. Well, can parents do anything about this? Because it seems like the train's already left the station as far as these online uh, platforms and curriculum being rolled out. As a parent, I've uh, received emails of uh, several per week about the way it looks. If we wanted to make a change, how can we have our voices heard? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, in our family, we've received you know, tens and tens of emails every week about what's going to be happening. I think there's a lot of things that parents can do. First of all, communicate with your teachers. I've had the conversation with teachers that academics are not going to be our priority here, um, at least not in this house. So you can have that conversation with your teacher. And I think it's important to let your teacher know that that's not what you're expecting. I think it, teachers also need to hear that parents are not expecting business as usual. You can also email your, your school principal. 
uh, it's a great time to email your MLA and the Minister of Education and say, listen, this we cannot continue a business as usual approach. Kids are gonna uh, are gonna reflect on this time in ways that are greater than worksheets or quizzes. So um, communicate as much as possible with the teachers and educators in your lives, and of course extend that to your MLA and the Minister of Education herself. I like it. I mean, there's lots of life learning to be done here, and it's a great opportunity, I think, for parents and kids to be spending some time together and, and teaching them great lessons that they will actually use in everyday life, right? Absolutely. And these are things that, you know, previous to this pandemic, we all we all said, we all said, you know, why aren't they learning these things in school? Or or we would reflect very nostalgically on things that our parents had passed down to us, mm-hmm. whether it's recipes or skills. This is a great opportunity to show how the learning you can do in school um, manifests itself in everyday, li- everyday life. And it's a great opportunity to sort of slow things down. Read with your kids. Write. Keep a journal. Thanks for your time this morning, Barb. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. That is Barb Selva, Public Education Advocate and Communications Director for Support Our Students. That's SOS Alberta. 609 on the morning news. The power of touch is well-researched and has been linked to benefits, including strengthening relationships, lessening stress, and bettering health. What happens, though, if you live alone and are spending isolation without any physical touch? We are joined by the founder and director of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine, Tiffany Field. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning. Could this be a case? I know it's well-researched, but uh, we don't really understand the power of touch until it's gone. Could that be a case during this pandemic? Right. I, I think that's true. Uh, we certainly don't know, um, we didn't know how much effect it has on the immune system at a time when we really need touch because touch, what happens is when you move the skin, you stimulate pressure receptors under the skin, and that reduces your stress hormone. And that saves your natural killer cells that kill viral cells. So at a time when we need it most, we're getting less of it, at least those of us who are alone. Um, People who are in families and in couples, I hope, are getting more touch because they have more time with each other. Isn't that ironic that we need it to keep our, you know, to keep us going and yet we're trying to stay away from a virus? It just seems very strange. So what happens, Tiffany, to our bodies if we don't get enough touching? There are a lot of people who are alone and and haven't touched somebody in maybe even a month. Right. I'm hoping that those people realize that they need to be moving around and and getting some exercise. You know, there are a lot of things that that move the skin, Um, just simply doing crunchies or sit-ups. Uh, rubbing your your back with a ball or a brushing yourself in the shower, even just the the hand washing that we're doing that stimulates pressure receptors under the skin. So I'm hoping that people who are alone are keeping active, and in so doing, they're getting that stimulation that they need to keep the immune system in good shape. When you say keeping active, could a part of that be those sorts of workouts, whether it be yoga, Pilates, or resistance? where you're using your body as the instrument? Yes, and there are a lot of uh, Zoom programs, free Zoom programs doing just that. And and yes, yoga yoga has very much the same effects as massage um, because you're you're moving the skin on your limbs and and your back and so forth. So yes, those those are all good, but you don't need those. You can do your own exercise regime. There's lots of programs to watch and, and to participate in. And that will actually replicate what it would feel like to our bodies to be touched? Yes, yes. Now, there, of course, when you're getting touched from a significant other, someone who's very intimate with you, that's 
it's going to be more meaningful emotionally and psychologically, but the, the same effects in terms of uh, the physical stimulus and, and all the bioelectrical and biochemical uh, response that occurs is, is very much the same. I've heard... You can walk around your condo and you're stimulating the pressure receptors in your, in your feet, and, and you know, that will do the same as someone giving you a back rub. Okay, so moving is key, as mm. you mentioned earlier. I've heard the term... Moving the skin. Yeah, yeah, moving the skin. There's a term called skin hunger, that your skin is actually hungry for that touch. Is, is that true? Is there truth to that, or how mm-hmm. would you describe that? Well, the worst case uh, that we know about are orphans in Romania who aren't getting enough touch, and so they don't grow and develop, and they have a lot of uh, behavioral problems. And, and uh, people get very aggressive when they don't get enough touch. So I don't think that this uh, this pandemic is going to necessarily um, cause any skin hunger, so to speak. Even before this pandemic, we weren't we weren't getting very much touch. We've been doing a study in airport gates, and we see there that people are on their cell phones. Mm. They're not touching. Ninety-eight percent of the time, they're on their cell phones and not holding hands or that sort of thing, right? Right, right. They're not holding hands. And and so maybe this will be a wake-up call for for us realizing that we really should be engaging in more in face-to-face interaction and, and hu- hugging and um, yeah, at least elbow bumping. <laughs> that was that was pretty much fun, I think. I watched people doing that, and, and they were smiling and laughing and making eye contact. So I think even if we can only have elbow bumping when we get out of this uh, – this pandemic and we're afraid there's going to be a second wave, um, the elbow bumping is fine. It, it, it's a nice greeting to people. And and maybe that is, you know, one of the positives that comes out of this, Tiffany, is that, you know, more eye contact, more uh, the ability to actually have a discussion or a, a quick chat or actually speaking to each other as opposed to just texting. Right. And we're even speaking to strangers now when we're passing them on the street just just to say hi. And, and you know, um, I'm passing by six feet or 10 feet away from you. And I just want to greet you, you know, it, it, get out of my way, so to speak. But I want to be friendly. So hello. Yeah. Tiffany, it's almost like a slippery slope, I would think, as well, if you're living alone, because you're sitting on the couch, maybe catching up on Netflix, maybe too much Netflix. And you're feeling bad because you are alone so that you you don't even feel like getting active and, and moving. So I guess the getting the word out and maybe calling those friends and encouraging them to walk, maybe do some yoga, maybe some self-massage as well. Because otherwise, uh, you know, in your head, the loneliness can take over. Yes, that's right. And that's a big problem, the loneliness and the depression that can happen. Uh, we're doing a, a survey right now, and those are some of the questions we have on there because we are concerned mostly about the single people, not so much about the families and couples. And and so, yes, we're trying to get the message out there. Be as active as you can. Moving the skin is very important. And then and then be with your friends on Zoom. Mm-hmm. To at least get some sort of contact. Tiffany, I wonder about people who, even if they are getting, you know, some touch at home, but are, are real huggers and, and really social animals and now not being able to, to hug all their friends and hug the people they see and, and be out and about. Is that going to take a, 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 an effect or have an effect on us physically or mentally, do you think? Well, I think we're not going to be hugging. I think you're right. I think people are afraid of, of having that, that very close contact. But as I said, I think people were delighting in the elbow bumping. And um, it seemed to me that there was more interaction 
uh, in that face to face with the elbow bumping than there than there was when you hug someone. When you you know when you hug someone, you have very little eye contact, or, and people don't aren't usually saying anything except slapping each other in the back. <laughs> so I, I think we're going to find other forms that aren't as uh, close face to face as maybe hugs have been. Mm. And um, uh, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not really worried about it. I think people know how to compensate. And I haven't seen any signs of aggression on, on the road, um, people being aggressive towards each other. So I, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be okay. Very interesting stuff. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Tiffany. Thank you. That is Tiffany Field, founder and director of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami's School of Medicine. 619 on your Thursday morning, and since COVID-19, there's been a spike in vivid dream recall. So how do you interpret what you see at night, and how do you manage them should nightmares become a little distressing to you during this time? We're joined by neuropsychologist Dr. Sanem Hafiz to discuss what you should know about dreaming during this pandemic. Good morning, Dr. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Are, are you hearing of a, a, you know, a spike in people who are experiencing really intense dreams during this pandemic then? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing about you know, a multitude of things from increased anxiety to increased substance abuse to increased you know, PTSD and this traumatic. And, and dreaming is one way we manifest a lot of these thoughts and behaviors in our, you know, that sort of lay in our subconscious and then they come out to play when we dream. Dr. Haviz, uh, is this a, a case of people who would normally dream? Because you talk to some people who say, I never have dreams. Or would this be people introduced mm-hmm. to the dream world for the first time because of the pandemic? It's possible. See, I, look, I think that, that people who tend to have vivid dreaming um, are probably more likely to be dreaming more mm-hmm. during this. Um, you know, people who don't tend to dream or don't remember their dreams more so, may not have the same impact, but a crisis-like situation um, that we're in now where people feel scared and, you know, there could be a loss of a job, there could be financial hardships, it could be someone who might be sick, someone who's, you know, very fearful of getting sick, all those, you know, emotions get sort of packed inside you, and then if you're more likely to dream, let's say you have more REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep you're more likely to have dreams during that phase of your sleep. Um, And it's more disturbed because you're not at rest. You're not at peace. Um, And, you know, you you have, uh, like I said, the the subconscious has a way of taking your experiences and your memories. And dreaming is a way we learn. It's a way our mind shuffles our memories and our experiences from the day. And they just sort of unleash during dreaming. Should we? There's definitely more vivid dreaming now. Yeah. So, should we be concerned by the theme of our dreams, or or should we just realize that maybe there's a bit of upset in our body and we need to take care of that? Um, I think there are definitely steps you can take to alleviate some of this dreaming, especially if it's you know the kind of dreaming that's disturbing and you wake up feeling somewhat unsettled by them. Um, So, some of the things that you can do is definitely cut back on the alcohol especially in the, the late evening hours, um, cut back on the caffeine, you know, try to take a bath before um, you go to bed, maybe some light music, turn, put away that phone. The, the, the news cycle is definitely a big trigger mm-hmm. for dreaming. So put away that phone, stop reading the news. You, you know what you need to know. Trust me, it will make it to you. The news will make it to you <laughs> one way or another. Um, you know, it's impossible to, to avoid it. Someone will call you or text message you or, or whatnot. So, 
you know, it's it's sort of like the winding down process has become even more important because, you know, also sleep is incredibly important to our immune systems. And if you're not getting good sleep, you're kind of doing, you know, damage that is counterproductive to what it is that you're trying to achieve. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Absolutely. That is Dr. Sanam Hafiz, a neuropsychologist based in New York City. It is 8-11 on the morning news. It's not the first time we've lived through a pandemic, and it can often be helpful to look to the past for guidance. So what did we learn from the Spanish flu, and what did we fail to learn? We're joined by historian with the University of Alberta, Susan Smith. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Susan, if we look back, uh, what do we see that's similar from 1918 compared to today? Well, some of the similarities are the important role of volunteers, people today working at the food banks, Meals on Wheels, trying to help provide child care for health care workers. All of this volunteer work is hugely important. And it was during the flu pandemic of 1918 when people for the Red Cross provided nursing care and um, really helped to look after uh, a crisis where so many people get sick all at once. And we're really seeing a similarity there, aren't we? We're seeing people really, you know, stepping up their respect for our frontline workers and just how vitally important they are. Absolutely. And, you know, in that sense, public health work always requires the work of citizens who agree to comply with regulations that really do interfere with their daily lives. I think we see that still. People are patient with restrictions. But another parallel is, in fact, when people grew impatient. And in the 1918 flu pandemic, about one month into it, and it began in March 1918, Mm -hmm. um, and then had a second wave in the fall. um, But people, after about a month, um, they kind of got tired of it and wanted life to return to normal. And that became a real struggle sometimes with local governments who wanted to um, relax some of the restrictions on on schools, on theaters, on business, and people's kind of patience. It, it's, it's hard for all of us because it seems, wow, this has been a major crisis, and maybe, you know, maybe we can return to normal. And that's another parallel is I see this kind of feeling of weariness from some sectors that are they're tired they've done this isn't that enough and and what we saw previously is in fact it was a real mistake when they relaxed some of those restrictions and and this pandemic we don't know what it will turn into but certainly in the 1918 flu pandemic it, there was a spring and then there was a fall pandemic a, a wave again So the takeaway uh, that I'm uh, hearing from you, uh, Susan, is it was very similar as far as those human feelings for interaction. But I guess we should take it as a, uh, you know, a lesson that can you imagine how hard it was back in 1918 with no telephone, no computer? We can talk to people and see their faces with technology. So uh, compared to what they went through, isolation truly meant isolation. Oh, that's absolutely true. And in fact, some towns even tried to isolate themselves. Some people may have heard that communities that would basically put um, a road sign up and say no one should enter because they were so afraid it would sweep in. Whereas today, if someone lives 
you know, a thousand miles away, it's, it's, it's totally possible to have that social connection. And that is a real difference. Um, another real difference is that governments did learn that you can't just turn your back. You have to help people, especially around the loss of jobs, loss of income, and step up. And that's also a lesson from the Great Depression. So the Great Depression with the stock market crash in 1929 and then massive unemployment throughout the 1930s, that crisis really taught governments the significance of having a federal government response, both the United States and Canada, other countries, that you had to have some centralized support that took care of um, huge economic losses that families experienced. So the role of government in supporting people financially as entire businesses shut down, as people lose jobs, that also has been an interesting parallel as a positive lesson learned. I mean, really, we can look back in, in history at a lot of things, can't we, Susan? That, that, you know, typhus, polio, the Spanish flu, as we're talking about, and the Depression, it seems we continuously get these waves that come through, and it really does make us look at ourselves, look at government, and look at our response to how we behave in these cases. Yes, and that's a reminder why universal health care in Canada is so important, because no one had to worry, could I afford a test? Could I afford to go to the hospital? And that kind of uh, support of knowing healthcare is a kind of basic part of Canadian life, that is huge. Um, and I also think it's a reminder, I, you know, teach history of medicine to students that, you know, there are always going to be illnesses that we haven't seen before, that we don't have a cure for. In 1918, that particular strain of the influenza virus was deadly. And people, millions of people died around the world. Today, hopefully we do not see that level. We are seeing deaths and a loss of a loved one is horrible, but the scale of destruction and death is not what we saw in 1918. Mm And in 1918, of course, there was a world war uh, going on. There was a, a world war in which there were many loss of soldiers' lives and civilian lives, and about 15 million people died in that war. But in terms, I'm sure people have heard, in the 1918 flu pandemic, at least 50 million people died around the world, and the figures are probably far higher. Whereas today, we're worried, but it's in the thousands. Um, we're not at that level. And I do think the intervention has stepped in. But like then, there is no cure. It's uh, very similar, and uh, we appreciate your time this morning, Susan. So I just remind everyone, pandemics do end. Yes. (laughs) Just have to take it one day at a time. Biggest takeaway. Uh, We'll pass. uh, This too shall pass. Thank you very much. That's Susan Smith, historian at the University of Alberta. Well, get ready for season three of the hit HGTV show, Backyard Build. It's kicking off tonight. We'll see bigger, bolder backyard transformations thanks to contractor Brian McCourt and designer Sarah Keenly side, who both join us now. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. Thank you both for being here. You know, I've been watching a couple of the trailers for the new season, and I didn't think you two could pull off any cooler stuff for people's yards, but you've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How's the show shaping up? You, you guys having some more fun doing it? And, and can you tell us some of the cool stuff that you're going to be doing this season? 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's our third season, right? So Brian and I know the backyard in and out. And so we thought, why not try to try to make things a little bit bigger and better? Try to, try to uh, you know, go outside our comfort zones and, and do things that are a little more bold. And, uh, and we really feel like we pulled it off and we've got some amazing projects to share with everyone this year. Third season in, and I'm wondering, uh, Brian or Sarah, you can answer this one. Your relationship, because you have an idea, Sarah, you want it to come to life. Uh, you know, Brian, you have to take it and run with it. Did it take a while to get, uh, you know, your groove working together? Um, what's interesting about Sarah and I is that we both crossed over into each other's um, professional roles. So Sarah has done tons of renovations on her own home mm-hmm. um, and homes that she's owned. And I do a lot of design. So while I'm doing a lot of the building and she's focusing on the design, we're still coming at it as a team and we collaborate a lot. So it's it's part of our friendship and our vibe. Um, we're really in every aspect together. Sarah, I'm yeah, curious. We're, we're... Oh, go ahead. We're very much a non-drama show. (laughs) Very much a non-drama show, (laughs) in the sense that we just really have a lot of fun, and uh, and yeah, it just really goes to show sort of two best friends working on projects together. It's it's a lot of fun. You can tell that you guys have fun together, and I kind of wanted to ask you that. You know, is what is it like when someone says, "I've got X amount of dollars"? Do you do you and Brian just look at each other and (laughs) your eyes light up, and and who comes up with the cooler ideas? Do you think? Well, um, you know, our job as professionals is to work with whatever budget we are given. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes a misconception that you need a certain amount of money to renovate your backyard. Professionals can work within a realm of what you have to work with. And it's, it's our job to be as creative as possible if the budget isn't very high. And also to just to, to stretch every dollar as far as possible. So, so it's it's sort of like um, it's one of the first things we ask our homeowners is a what do you want and then you know b how much money do you have mm-hmm. because we have to sort of like curtail the project accordingly but sometimes I like it when there's not a big budget because it just means that Brian and I have to get more more creative. I like yeah. the yeah I like the fact also that you folks make it a living space. It's not just a backyard or, you know, with a a patch of grass here and there in the barbecue, but it's an extension of your home, really, when you guys are done, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we aim for. We want people to spend as much time as possible in their backyard. And we live in a four-season climate that is, 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 um, is opposite ends of the spectrum. Really, really hot, then everywhere to really, really cold. And so, we always do an interior component as well so that we can extend the time that people um, get to use their backyard. And then often we'll open that up with really big doors or garage doors through the summer months so that we have that indoor-outdoor flow. And um, especially in this time when everyone's required to stay home and we all need to do our part, um, having a backyard like that is so important um, because it makes you feel like you're not cooped up. Sarah, what would be your tip to us as we are finally going to experience a little bit of nice weather here in Calgary this weekend? We can get outside, sort of start working on our backyards because we're going to be stuck in them for a while yet. What would be, you know, one or two tips you could give us of how to make it feel super homey? Yeah, well, I I think that everyone, like myself, are, you know, if you're lucky enough to have an outdoor space, you're looking into your backyard and thinking like, oh, man, I really meant to 
rake those leaves in the fall. You know, <laughs> the, the snow melts, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't get around to that, did I? Well, now we have time. Uh, so first things first, do a bit of yard maintenance, rake everything up that you forgot to deal with in the fall, and just see with what you're working with. Um, I, Brian and I always love to tell people, come up with a big picture plan for what you want your backyard, your dream backyard to be like. Um, not everyone has the budget to do a big backyard renovation all at once. And mm-hmm. that's what we hope that our show can give people is a lot of inspiration, big picture ideas that maybe is something you can strive towards in a couple years of renovating. Um, come up with your big plan of what you want your backyard to look like and then start compartmentalizing that and working on it year by year because then you will design the deck where you need to because you know in the future you want that hot tub that's attached to it, you know? So uh, you're not having to do some work and then undo it when you come up with a, a bigger picture idea for your backyard in the future. Yeah, and we're making it sound like we have these, like, amazing backyards that we've done <laughs> ourselves. But our, our little secret is that we've been so busy doing other people's backyards that ours aren't done yet. And actually, not to sell Sarah out so hard, but... <laughs> Like really particularly bad. bad. Sorry, sorry, guys. We're gonna have to jump in here and let you go. Thank you. Season three of Backyard Builds kicks off.